Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 085. Are you a tough guy? Are you a hard guy? Well, let's find out. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Uh been uh, really kicking it hard in the shop the last few days, and Got some knives out the door, and when the guy came and picked some knives up, he uh, ordered uh, the bane of my existence, two eight-inch chef knives and magna-cut that are S-ground and hand-sanded. So uh, gave him the price. He thought about it for about four seconds and said, let's do it. <laughs> you clearly did not charge him enough. <laughs> so, but yeah, he's. I think uh, he's going to be a really good customer for a long time, so I'm excited. Uh did a couple different little knife designs that uh, a lot of people are seeming really like, uh, kind of took some of his favorite knives that he uses in the kitchen, kind of use those styles, kind of put my, my handle tweak and stuff on it, tweaked it a little bit. And, um, he also wanted some steak knives. So, uh, that had been something that I'd kind of wanted to spend some time on, had lots of people say, I want a steak knife. And when I give them, it's going to be like $200 a knife. Uh, they're like, um, uh, yeah, I don't want a steak knife set anymore. <laughs> and uh, this guy said, uh, can you make 12 of them? I'm like, absolutely. So made a couple of prototypes for him. He's going to test them out. The, I've been using the one that I made for myself. Um, really like the the bias cut black uh, Micarta that I used with uh, the white G10 dots for the pins. Looks really cool. Think about doing some different colors and stuff. It's fancy like a tuxedo. Yeah. So, um, thinking about, or working on making a little box on the 3d printer that'll kind of like hold them. So it'll show off the file work and then, uh, kind of on the side too. So little presentation box, like at the fancy restaurant where you pick your steak knife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So looking at some different options with that, also looking at possibly making like, uh, the 3d printed insert and then having some like thin wood. Uh, kind of cut with tabs so I can kind of, it'll yeah. fit all together. So kind of like a cigar box. Yeah. Just make a, make the, make it not just be plastic or, but I think with the, the 3d printing with kind of how I do the stuff, I think it could be pretty cool too. So I do lots of 3d printing. A little bit of value added. Yeah. And the great thing about the 3d printers, it takes quite a bit of time on the front end designing it and stuff. But once you got it all dialed in, you can hit go and out pops more, more parts, uh, however many hours later. Yeah. So, but yeah, I've been doing a bunch of stuff like that. What have you been up to in the shop? Um, I am trying to dig myself out of a hole. I, uh, I didn't really think about it, but with all the surgeries, I had really been working 
18 months out of the last three years. And I am, I'm starting to make progress on back orders. And it, there's a couple of things in the shop, dust collection systems, a couple of things that I had been neglecting because I wasn't doing a lot of volume and I could get away with it. And I've had to do a lot of shop maintenance, but, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I had I, a, dust collector story so i've got the cyclone collector and then uh, a paper filter with a bag and then uh, i looked up at the the bag under my paper filter and i'm like man that's really filling up down up there and then i opened the the bottom and my my whole cyclone was full (laughs) full of dust and chips (laughs) apparently i had done a lot more work than uh i had realized since the last time i cleaned it out so if you guys are using a cyclone filter uh check it from time to time mine's black plastic in a steel can so there's no like viewport in there to kind of see but it was pretty pretty heavy there was about no 45 50 pounds of uh dust and chips I can and stuff believe it. i uh i reconfigured my dust collection system to put the the impeller and the motor up on the ceiling to get it out of the way and i was moving i was remounting it and arguably being a knucklehead and doing it by myself and it got away from me and I thought I was fine, and then I realized that the little cooling fan that runs off the motor had bent, and I couldn't get it straight, and I couldn't get it straight, and I was going to to Jet websites trying to find the replacement part and getting close to panicking that a $2 part was going to cause me to replace a $600 motor. And today I was looking at it and I was just slowly turning it by my hand. And I just noticed one spot that was a little different. And I have spent hours trying to straighten this thing out. And I reached up and gave it a little tweak. And just as a, like a last second, what the hell, I turned it on and it spun up and it was nice and consistent. And I wasn't getting that ting, ting, ting sound. So it was a, on one hand, I was a knucklehead that spent hours looking for a replacement part when I just hadn't quite straightened it enough. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I saved having to buy a new motor because I tried one more time. Yeah. So we're putting that one down as a W. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to know when to quit on that. Sometimes it turns into a personal vendetta. I spent way too much time. Well, clearly not too much time because it saved me buying a new motor, but yeah, I I broke out the anvil and the ball peen hammers and was getting the fins realigned and had gone pretty far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> gotcha. For the first time in my life, it turns out the answer was to just go a little bit further, <laughs> but I'm great. Uh, it's been, I've had to, it's been a little embarrassing because I have had to talk to some clients that I am way late on deliveries on. The legitimate reason being that I've I've had medical issues, but in the end, you still got to look somebody at least proverbially in the eye and go, yeah, I, I screwed up. I, I didn't make my. And I've been very fortunate. Everybody's been very understanding this so far, but it is it is nice to start to get out of the hole. Yeah, uh, I freed up a little bit of time. I've got some uh, oyster knife designs coming out there. Uh, 
they headed out to the restaurants this week for some uh, some R and D. I hope to have them back within a month, and I feel pretty confident. Are they hinge cracker or lip prying? Um, you know, funny you should mention that. Being southeast, all Apalachicola, we always went at the hinge. But when I was in Croatia, um, they and theirs are flatter for some reason. But they go, uh, they go from the the opening. Yeah. Uh, so these, I, are only, the, I only know that from talking to some some people in the northeast. So, uh, I think that these will do both. They they are a knife in a lot of sense of the word. Um, so the the tip is sturdy enough to go in through the hinge, but I've got some fine enough points on there that you can slide it along and open yeah. up from the front. Gotcha. For whatever reason, oysters are one of the things that uh, never really cared for. I like them when they've been steamed, but raw ones just never, never have appealed to me that much. I like raw. I definitely like steamed. I uh, I just can't. I I know. Go ahead and fire up your word processors. God, I'm old. Um, <laughs> your your email machines, but. Uh, I can do steamed, but I can't do like Rockefeller or when they put all that crap on top of them. Like I just, yeah. you know, eat an I, oyster, I, eat an oyster. I do like po' boys where they, they fry them. Ooh. Those are pretty good, but. See, I'm I'm a hard no on fried oysters. Yeah. yeah. I, I like steamed. I love raw, but I, I'm a hard no on fried. It's that, that crispy snot ratio that just, it's either got to be snot or not snot. That's. Mm. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the snot. Yeah. Uh, I am missing my crab legs, though. I wish that uh, the crab populations they could find them and then we could catch them again because it's way too way too expensive. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. the snow crabs are hiding from all the the research vessels, so they like not gonna have much snow crab this year. Apparently, so that that <sighs> physically pains me a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Joel, my old apprentice, uh, his brother works in the the Bering Straits fleet. I'm gonna have to give him a call and let him know that uh, you know seasons, whatever. I don't want to hear excuses. We need some crab legs. <laughs> yeah, I've thought about doing doing that for like one season and just getting paid all in crab legs. Uh, my one of the lieutenants I had had was working a boat. Um, between semesters and they had just had a horrible run. There was no money. It was time for him to go back to school and he was going to be broke. And he rolled the dice and stayed for one more week, which had him like three days late showing up for school, but he made 10 grand in that one week. Um, yeah. He made his entire season just in one week. Yeah. Like it, it is amazing how fickle that can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we have digressed pretty far. <laughs> um, yeah, our love of seafood. Uh, or, so I, first of all, one of our sponsors I'd like to talk about is Phoenix Abrasives. I put in an order today. I ordered 115 belts. Uh, Greg and his crew had no idea I was putting it in today. Ordered them at 115 and got an email at 308 uh, that said all of my order was shipped. So, yeah, and it said that it should be here. We're recording on a Tuesday. It said it's supposed to be here on Thursday. So pretty happy with that. Uh, 
always getting your orders out quick. Uh, you can use discount code KP10 to save 10% on your order. The 115 belts that, uh, that saved me quite a bit on there, uh, shipping and everything. So, uh, Thank you, Greg and crew, for all of your great work up there. And we also have Chance Knife Supply. They, they, you can use discount code KPGRIP for 10% off your handle material there. Uh, on top of the handle material, they have all sorts of your steel, powdered metal, um, and all sorts of fixtures and knife supplies and epoxies and stuff that you could possibly need. And we have Ridge Runner Blades, who has been great to work with. Uh, We've, we've talked a lot about uh, Taylor and how he's built that shop. Uh, right now, they're sharing space with their, um, uh, we'll say their mother store. Let's just say that building is all things Second Amendment. Uh, but it is looking like they are rapidly outgrowing their section of the store and, and may wind up having to get their, their own sh- store space. That'd be cool which just speaks to the amount of growth that they've had in the last year. And uh, talking to Taylor, he said with them growing really where he wants to focus is back to good maker dealer relationships, start working with, with more of the custom and the the mid tech guys that are, are trying to make that next step up Mm -hmm. and they want to start investing there and put some advertising in behind it. So really some great opportunities coming up with them. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, we also have uh, Atlas. Oh, wait, 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 wait. What? You, you've already done two. You've done two and I've only done you one. Have ice you in your you mouth. can do another one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I don't have it in my mouth now. Do All I right, go again? Okay, sweet. Uh, which one were you going to do? Atlas? Yeah, <laughs> man. I, you know, I love Dan and Natasha, but I want to do set supply. All righty. That is Spencer, Ed, and Todd. All knife makers making knife materials for knife makers. Uh, they've done some really cool handled materials. They've got a, I guess, technically it's a three-axis knife vise. That One of the things I like about it is it's a pass-through vise. So with some of my bigger kitchen knives, uh, especially when I'm working the handle, I can Instead of having the handle, four or five inches of blade sticking out from the vise, and then I get a little flex in the handle, uh, I can run the blade up all the way up against the edge of the vise so it stays nice and stiff when I'm working on the shape of my handles. Yeah, they've been working a bunch on their shop. If you guys haven't uh, been following any of their Facebook or Instagram posts, uh, Spencer just, as Spencer and Todd just built a really cool desk for him and their uh spencer's kind of work area is becoming more and more polished it's not the the corner of the shop anymore <laughs> <laughs> well the the casting part is but his uh computer side is got a pretty nice uh u-shaped desk there so nice yeah it looked pretty good okay you can uh you can do atlas since you know they're your buddies who you drive up and see every week for ridiculous amounts of uh, Westinghouse micarta. It's not every which week. I should shut up because you share it with me. <laughs> uh, I am going to have to go up there soon. Uh, those uh, two chef knives that uh, got ordered. Uh, he wants to use the blue uh, dragon scale Juma. So going to need to get some more of that stuff. Uh, that was my 
on some knives that I posted today. Those the the first knives I ever made with the Juma, and it, it worked really easily. It was uh, stayed really nice and smooth with the pin material and everything, and it polished real nice. And I thought it was going to be a lot more like the Kiranite and stuff like that, but it just sanded way easier than the Kiranite. Uh, I liked it a lot. So, and I get less residual scratches in it than I do with the Kiranite. Okay. The cure night, I'll start polishing, and then there's a, a deep scratch that I didn't see. And then I work back, and I just, I'm constantly chasing scratches with cure night that I don't get to see, that I don't get with a Juma. Yeah. With uh, with some of those handle materials that sand so much easier, I've been shaping with a, a 120 or even a 220 grit belt. Just uh, uh, try to not have some of those deep scratches that you're trying to get out later. Um, yeah. Even though it takes a little bit longer with the higher grit belt, yeah. Uh, that softer material just sands so much quicker that it, it saves you a lot of hand sanding time later. Um, Nahash also wants you guys to know about checking out their eBay store. Um, they're, uh, they have a lot of their stuff on eBay that is either, uh, no longer being carried some off cuts and miscuts, um, and some really good deals there. So, uh, check out, um, that area for, opportunities too yeah there's some uh some excellent bang for the buck opportunities there we also have cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives sponsoring the show uh thank you uh, thank you to the wives for uh sponsoring our show and you can find dan and kyle's knives at knife center and you can find dan's knives at the cook station blade hq ridge runner blades in Asheville crafted edge and you can find my knives at Northside Cutlery with Kevin Silverman. And you can find my knife making tools at Phoenix Abrasives. And you can also find my carbide straightening hammer at housemade.us with Brian House and uh, Brent Smith doing some cool stuff over there. So make sure you check those guys out. All right. I was totally paying attention. I didn't forget to go down on the uh, show notes. Um, yeah, oh yeah, shit, you covered it all, dude. We don't have any, uh, shout outs or gear talk. No, I got, uh, I got a pretty good Dan's rant brewing, but, uh, I need to fact check a few things, run it by the attorney, make sure I'm not open to liable. Um, I'll, I'll save it for next episode, but, uh, yeah, I got one cooking. Yeah, I got a bunch of rant feedback that uh, I had a handful of our listeners going back and looking through all my posts and uh, said they couldn't find it, uh, find my the people that I was talking about in my rant. It was like, that's because I deleted it. And he goes, how yeah. how am I supposed to cause them problems if you deleted their comment? <laughs> I was like, uh, I'm not, I don't hey, want to try all, to weaponize our listeners for that one. Well, hold on. First of all, I want to thank our listeners that is the level of devotion and support that we're really looking for. I mean, that's the real reason we created this podcast. <laughs> we talk about giving out information and helping the community. No, 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 no. We need a group of guys that have got our backs. And you got you guys, you guys that were out there ready to fight for us. Thank you. I, I deeply appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you guys. But you were right to not waste it on a bunch of schmucks that were just talking some trash. <laughs> yeah, it was not worth it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. On one of my uh, jungle videos, some of the comments were getting out of hand, and I chimed in, and some guys said, you know, 
you can't stop me from talking. This is a private forum. I just had to respond with, oh, but I can. And then blocked Block. him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Funny stuff. So you want to introduce our guest? Um, I guess I should. Um, you know what? Yes. Yes, I do. Let's get on with this. Let's light this candle. Uh, we've had this guest on a couple of times. Uh, once I get around to actually introducing him, if y'all want to learn more about the man that is behind the myth and the legend, uh, I'm sure Kyle will put that, uh, which show that was in our show notes. Uh, I will introduce him as saying, I once realized that I had annoyed him with too many seemingly obvious technical questions and had to apologize because he is the most intelligent person I know. Uh, that would be Dr. Laren Thomas. How are you doing today? Oh, you were talking about me. I was. <laughs> no, I, uh, for better or worse, uh, you are going to have to carry the cross of whenever I, I have a technical metallurgical question, I, I just go right for the smartest person I know, and that's you today. All right. I love it. <clears throat> Oh, uh, this is the part where I'm supposed to ask questions. <laughs> so, I, I would love to answer some questions. Okay. Uh, let's start with a little groundwork um, or just some base definitions. Uh, as people have probably figured out by now, we're going to talk a little bit about hardness and toughness and how things get to be why, the way they are and how things have changed. But um, just to, to kind of lay the groundwork, what is toughness? Okay. Toughness actually has multiple definitions, but the easiest one for our purposes is resistance to fracture. So resistance to a tip breaking off a knife or an edge chipping is normally what we're concerned with. And so th this is different than, you know, resisting deformation or edge retention, you know, for colloquially, Sometimes people talk about something being tough as just difficult to uh, modify, you know, like break or deform or, you know, anything under this term of toughness. You know, it's a tough person, a tough material. But toughness, yeah, fracture, cracking. Uh, and would it be fair to, to add a little caveat of that? Like to talk about knives, it would be, for example, Blade's ability to be moved out of shape and then return back to shape uh, where your tip bends and doesn't break? Or am I, uh, am I mixing up a, a few things with duct? Well, toughness can be correlated with ductility and ductility is how far you can stretch something or bend something before it breaks. Uh, and, but the diff difference for this working definition would be, if something's ductile, it'll it'll bend, but it may not return back to its original shape. Where if something is tough, it it'll be deformed, but it'll come back to its original shape. Well, one way we can separate them is toughness is often measured with impact. Okay. So if you impact something and it cracks, then it may have had low toughness, depending on how much energy okay. we're talking. You know, if it can handle a lot of energy in an impact and not break, right. it is tough. Now, when materials are 
ductal, meaning they can stretch far. So a common test in materials is the tensile test, where we just pull a bar of steel until it breaks. And if it stretches really far, it is highly ductile. That often means it is also tough, but they don't always correlate one-to-one. -one. Right. So sometimes if you have high strength and high, man, we're just throwing in more definitions, yeah. high strength and high ductility, it will have high toughness. So especially in certain types of toughness tests, I think it's more confusing in English. In some other languages like German, they have multiple names for toughness for the different types. Yeah. But in materials, we have multiple definitions for toughness. And so it can get confusing okay. even among metallurgists. Yeah. You got your like modulus of elasticity and all those different coefficients. Oh, we're just, there's, people are already bored yeah. that's why I'm saying <laughs> actually, actually we need to stall and give everybody a chance to run go get a notebook or uh, wake up the notes section on their phone um, okay so working definition for the purpose of this conversation uh, a tip breaking would show a lack of toughness um, mm. uh, bending and coming back relatively true would be a sign of toughness uh, no, okay. I wouldn't say that, actually. Okay. Uh, so if you uh, if you bend something and let go and it comes back to the same shape, you have deformed it elastically. So just like a spring. All right. So materials, well, metals are made up of all these atoms. So, you know, steel is a bunch of iron atoms all connected to each other. And when you have a paper clip, and you're bending it a little bit and you let go and it springs back, uh, you're only affecting the elastic behavior of the material. You're not deforming it. You're not permanently bending it. So all you're doing is stretching the iron, iron bonds. Yeah. So you can visualize this. Mm. And uh, then if you bend it farther and let go, it'll spring back some of the way, but not all of the way. So you bent it some elastically and then you kept going and you were bending it plastically or permanently. So when you let go, it does go back, you know, it springs back some from those iron-iron bonds that are springing back, but you also permanently deformed it. And if you have, if you made a, a paper clip out of a really hard steel, you would have to bend it really far to get it to permanently deform because it would be very strong. So now we're talking strength, which correlates with hardness. Hardness and strength are basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. If it's really hard, it's brittle, and so you would never permanently deform it. If you bent it far enough, it would snap. Mm. And that's a brittle material, low ductility, most likely low toughness. Uh, so toughness really has uh, less to do with elasticity and more to do with impact? Yes. Okay. All right, the, that's something even this college dropout can wrap their head around. All right. Uh, we touched on tar hardness, and since there's going to be some compare and contrast here, uh, let's see if we can get an equally confusing definition of hardness. Uh, okay. Hardness is resistance to deformation. So we're talking resistance to rolling an edge. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you're bending a knife, like if we have a hard piece of steel and a fillet knife, you can bend it 90 degrees, it springs right back. If you did not heat treat it to a high enough hardness, you'll bend your fillet knife 90 degrees and it'll stay bent because it had insufficient hardness. 
right. So hardness will also increase resistance to scratching. So another definition of hardness is resistance to scratching. There's the Mohs scale, you know, where diamond is a 10. I forget what's a one, like talc or something. You know, there's sapphire, which is like a six or seven. And so the harder it is, you know, the harder it is to scratch it. So you need something higher on the Mo scale to scratch your material. Right. All right. Because yeah. well, let, let me define all these things again. So hardness, resistance to deformation, toughness, resistance to fracture. Uh, and we'll throw in uh, wear resistance, which is just resistance to wear resistance to abrasion you guys can't see it dan is actively writing stuff down and it's amazing you're gonna kill my reputation <laughs> yeah I, occasionally i do take notes because god knows i don't want to have to listen to this podcast yeah so <laughs> yeah. like we, when we you did this once i think it was episode six and or <laughs> seven but we, we can do it again no one remembers back that far it, true yeah because um, when you actually like do a hardness measurement you're actually measuring like the actual uh, distance that the indenter goes in and it comes back. Yeah, you're literally deforming the material. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're putting a fixed load on the steel with that indenter, and the more it indents, you know, then the uh, the less hardness your steel has. So you can look right at the indent. You know, if it's a soft piece of steel, you've got a relatively large indent. If it's a hard piece of steel, you get a really small indent. So you can mm-hmm. see how much the material deformed from the indentation. All right. um, generally, in general terms, what made steel steel is adding adding carbon to iron made it harder. Would that be correct? Yes. Carbon makes iron stronger and harder. All right. So, um, so the answer to, well, I guess this is something that's changed a lot. It used to be, especially with like the 10 series steels, carbon equaled hardness. As a general rule, would that be fair? Yes. Higher carbon means higher hardness. And, uh, that is true even in the annealed state, uh, or maybe, yeah, but that, that is true annealed. It's a pretty small effect, um, you know. So even if there's no carbon in solution, it's still stronger. Um, so car- you add carbon, and one of two things can happen. One is that the carbon goes in between the iron atoms. It's called an interstitial atom. Interstitial meaning in between. So you got all these iron atoms connected to each other. They're big. The carbon atoms are small. They're so small, they can go in between the carbon atoms. So the carbon is in solution, meaning in between all those atoms, and it strengthens the steel. The other thing that can happen is you get a bond that forms between iron and carbon, and that makes an iron carbide. So the carbides themselves will increase the strength of the steel some, but the greatest effect of carbon on strength is by getting the carbon in solution. With your normal room temperature iron, it's a certain phase called ferrite body-centered cubic. You don't really need to remember that. It has a low solubility for carbon. You cannot get very much carbon in between those iron atoms. When you heat the steel up hot 
you transform the steel to austenite. This is really easy to tell because austenite is non-magnetic. Austenite is a different phase. The iron atoms are arranged differently, called phase-centered cubic. And you can get much more carbon in solution. And when you talk about carbon in solution, uh, mm-hmm. the, the simple example from chemistry class is you can put salt in a glass of warm water and mm-hmm. the salt is... stir it up. It dissolves. It is in solution. Mm-hmm. If you add too much, or let's say you added in a bunch of salt when it was hot and you got a bunch of salt to mix in there with very hot water, then you cool down the water the solubility for salt in the water is less and you actually precipitate out salt again because it can't hold that much salt at the lower temperature. Which would be what's happening with steel. The the carbon is dissolving into the iron. Yeah. Okay. And then if you slow cooled it, it can't hold that much carbon in solution anymore and it would precipitate out mm-hmm. as an iron carbide. Right. And then that's when quenching comes in. Yep. So you quench rapidly. That locks in the carbon. It tries to transform to ferrite, the body-centered cubic normal iron structure, but it can't because all that carbon is locked in there. So it makes a distorted structure called martensite, which has a lot of carbon locked in in solution, and it's very high hardness. So uh, with some modern alloys, uh, we're seeing, for lack of a better term, harder steels. So so what what has changed in the in the alloys that we're now getting getting steel that's harder? Okay. So when we have let's say we've got uh 26C3. This is a si- relatively simple high carbon steel, 1.25% carbon. Similar steels would be 125CR1 or file steel. They're just high carbon simple steels, even higher carbon than 1095. When you heat them up to a normal austenitizing temperature prior to quenching, we'll say 1475 Fahrenheit, uh, it's too late for me to convert to Celsius. So like eight, <laughs> 830 or something uh, Celsius. The vast majority of our listeners use freedom numbers, so you're okay. Yeah, that, that might be 1500 or 1525. I don't know. You guys can convert. 1475 and we quench. You get something like 66, 67. Right. That's pretty dang hard. So, I mean, even 1095, you can get that kind of hardness. So, you know, that that's pretty dang hard. So getting up to something really hard, like 70 RC, we're only three points away with pretty typical heat treating. Now, of course, that means we did not temper at all, but we're already at 67. So getting to 70 is not the craziest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. You're with me. Yep. Now, if we got this one one and a quarter percent carbon steel, like 26C3, if we heat it up hotter than 1475, we will dissolve more carbide and put more carbon in solution, and we can get even a little bit harder. But if we keep heating hotter and hotter and quenching, the hardness will reach some peak, let's say 67, 68. And then if you were to go hotter prior to quenching, the hardness would actually start to go down. The reason is not grain growth. The reason is retained austenite. So when uh, we quench the steel to form martensite, some of the austenite will transform to the hard martensite and some will not. The some that does not 
is retained in the steel. It's called retained austenite. Martensite forms in a temperature range. There's a martensite start and a martensite finish. And if the martensite finish is below room temperature, then it never fully transforms and there is some austenite retained. Carbon pushes down the temperature range. So if you put more and more carbon in solution, eventually you could get a fully austenitic steel. So, you know, it's completely non-magnetic steel. It's pretty soft. Uh, you didn't form any martensite. Mm -hmm. But if we add cryo, then you go down to a lower temperature during or after your quench. And so you could get 26C3 up to pretty high hardness, uh -huh. up to 6970 RC. And that's just with simple carbon steel. Wow, that... Uh... That answers a whole bunch of questions in the whole next section. So uh, just uh, just humor me if we have to repeat each other, ourselves in a minute. Yeah, I, I am predicting your future questions and answering them right now. You know, <laughs> I, I, a man of your education, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, so side note, interesting that you can uh, you can over... You can overheat a steel during the heat treat process and degrade your uh, your performance. Yeah, and the steel can still be pretty hard. So let's say, you know, we were 66 RC as quenched with our proper temperature, like 1475. Now you overheat it up to 1600 on accident, you know, because you're heat treating in a forge. You have no control over your temperature. You thought you were around 1475. You're wrong. Uh, like many knife makers before you, <laughs> selling junk knives. Uh, and you quenched, and you got 63. And you're like, okay, you know, I've got a hardness tester, but no furnace for some reason. I got 63, totally fine. It's only 3RC off. And you temper it at a little bit lower temperature, and you got 60 Rockwell after. You're like, that was my target. Everything is cool. But you got that 3 Rockwell C drop, because of extra retained austenite. The retained austenite is soft. And so your edge is going to perform worse, even at the same hardness. It will deform easier. So the hardness uh, doesn't always show you what's called the yield stress. And there's way too many terms. <laughs> but the, the yield stress is when it starts deforming. So when we, we were bending something and then it started to permanently bend. And so the yield stress is lower. And uh, this shows up with the edge deforming. Also, steels with high retained austenite are very difficult to deburr. They just don't want to deburr. You know, you'll, you'll pull the burr off and it just leaves a ragged edge, which isn't very sharp. Uh, is that carbites or grain size or... It's just retained austenite, okay. so higher retained austenite. You could have a very fine grain size, mm -hmm. but have lots of retained austenite, and you'll have an edge that easily deforms and doesn't like to sharpen. Huh. So sometimes when people say like, oh, these super steels or this steel or whatever, it sharpens really bad, it may not be from the high wear resistance that they're blaming it on, but rather the steel has high retained austenite, and it just is not easy to sharpen no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. um, or it had a poor heat treat. Yeah. Well, and yes, that this is the poor heat treatment that we're talking about. This is what they did. 
to make it so bad. Uh, and I'm going to throw in an extra term just to feel cool. Um, it, when we're talking about sharpening and, and edge sharpness, uh, the term that I have become familiar with is keen. Like how how fine that edge is. Mm-hmm. And if you have too much retained austenite, that keeps you from getting as fine an edge. And that's where the trouble in sharpening, it just doesn't seem to get sharp would come in. Well, many knife makers I know have a definition for keenness, including my father. Uh, it's made up as far as I can tell. You know, this is not like an engineering term. You know, so it's an industry term. <clears throat> I don't even remember what my dad's definition is right now. But the the main thing that controls your sharpness, I mean, we'll give a couple of things. The biggest one is the radius of the edge or the width of the edge. So, you know, a dull piece of steel, you know, that can't cut anything, it is very thick at the edge. It's not sharp. It's not a triangle. Right. Right. Uh, the more rounded you make the tip of a triangle, the bigger its radius is, the wider its edge width is, the worse it is at cutting. Right. This is relatively intuitive. If you've got a sharp triangle with a uh, sharp tip on it. It cuts. As you cut things, you abrade away that edge. It gets rounder and rounder. The radius gets bigger. The width gets wider. And it no longer cuts. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing that controls our sharpness. Mm-hmm. Uh, a secondary thing is level of polish. So, you know, going up to higher levels of polish can sometimes make it easier to make the edge sharper or the radius smaller, but it also changes some of the edge characteristics. Rather than this ragged edge with a coarse finish, it is polished. A less polished, more coarse edge cuts longer when you are slicing. And a polished edge uh, cuts better when you're doing a pure push cut. Mm. And so maybe keenness is defined as the level of polish. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if keenness means anything. Yeah. Um, people can argue with me about that. Uh, I, oh. Yeah. I, the radius of the edge sounds way more technical than my understanding of just how fine an edge. Um, mm. How pointy the edge is. That's how sharp it is. There we go. Yeah, that's why that's why a lot of those like chisel makers and stuff polish the edge so much because they're doing a straight push. They're not doing much slicing with the edge. Yeah, and and there's you can see some stuff on YouTube or various articles where they're doing planing yeah. experiments, you know, with highly polished edges, and almost the more polish they put on it, the better it'll cut up to some point. Uh, but with knives, there's almost always some slice. You know, even these highly polished sushi knives. If you watch them, they're always slicing. They're almost never pushing straight down. Yeah, the the draw motion, as I understand it, the draw motion adds efficiency to the the cut versus the chop. Yeah, there there is physics behind this. You know, there there's no way around it. Some people will argue, you know, there's something inherently better about a push cut, but it's not true. The physics says a slice is more efficient. It cuts better. You know, it's basically sharper. Um, and you don't need to spend all day putting a six or 8,000 grit finish on your cap iron as a woodworker. If you could just slice with a plane. Yeah. Not that I have any withheld resentment. Yeah. So less force is required during cutting. If you have a slicing motion. 
side note, um, that's one of the ways I, Joe's got one of the Carta testers and, uh, I, I may have conned him a little bit cause I would just gently draw as I pushed down with the knives I was using. With the sharpness tester? Yep. I, I see. It was, uh, I think it's, it's the, the little wire, yes. wire on a scale and it judges pressure. Okay, so that one is an edge on up scale, oh. and it it uses Bess Media B E S S. That's it. Sorry. Yeah, if you, if you slice on those, it's definitely cheating. I think they have a newer model that has like a fixed arm thing to slice with as a slicing test. I don't have one of those, so I can't say more. But yeah, uh, um, they've got the one Joe had has got a little pivot, but it's the it's in no way a fix, so it was easy for me to just give it a little bit of draw. Um, yeah, they have like a little, uh, just a little magnet stand thing that you're supposed to put one end of the knife on, and then you push down from that fulcrum yep. point. Uh, but I don't even use that thing. So if anything, it seems to give you a small slice because you're like, you know, like I said, there, it's a fulcrum. So you're you're moving uh, side to side at the same time that you're going down. So I, I don't even use it. Once I fessed up that I was cheating, we started playing with which side of the the belly, you know, taking mm-hmm. knives that have belly and looking was the back side of the radius or the front side of the radius more efficient and, and started playing with from just that standpoint that. Yeah. You can also affect it by going fast instead of slow. And there are other things you'll see some people that say, Oh, this test is garbage. Look, I can cheat the test. Uh, But any test, the fanciest engineering controlled ASTM spec tests, they have specifications for a reason. Because if you look at things like the speed of the cut, it affects the test. Now there is no ASTM spec. For this test, but you have to do it the same way every time, you know. And so, if you see a random guy on YouTube say like, "I got one gram on the test," it's like, "Well, I can get one gram too," you know. But I, I may not accept that result. Well, now we get into what's your goal? Is your are you trying to get useful information, or are you trying to uh, to get marketable information? Yeah, uh, but we have digressed a little bit. Um, so it's not necessarily that uh, some of the modern steels can get harder, but they have, perhaps because of toughness, they have higher working hardnesses. Does that seem? Well, one one important factor is tempering resistance. So, you know, we talked about how these simple steels can get 66, 67, even, you know, up to 68, 69 as quenched, especially with cryo. But when you temper them, even at 300 degrees, they're already down to 64 often uh, and perhaps even lower. You know, you can have 66 Rockwell 1095 tempered at 400 degrees and it's already down to 60, right? If you add different alloying elements, so chromium, molybdenum, stuff like that, the tempering is slower. So you can temper, you know, we have two steels. Both have 1% carbon. One's got 5% chromium. One has 0% chromium. You temper at 400 degrees. The one with 5% chromium is going to be harder, mm-hmm. even if it was the same hardness as quenched, maybe even a little lower hardness as quenched. All right. You know, like, uh, well, we can do this easily. So A2 is 1% carbon and 5% chromium. 
you know, you can compare that with 1095 temperament, the same temperature, the A2 will be harder. All right. Now, if you go even further, we temper it like a thousand degrees. If you have certain alloying elements, especially molybdenum, tungsten, and vanadium, you'll get an increase in hardness rather than a decrease. So you temper hotter and hotter, the hardness keeps going down to like 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Then it starts to go up as you increase the tempering temperature and it will peak around 900, 950 degrees. So the hardness will go up again. Some of these very high hardness steels are high in molybdenum, tungsten, vanadium, especially high speed steels. They're called high speed steels because they're used for high speed machining operations where the high speed creates a lot of friction, they heat up and they will soften unless they have all these elements added to them to prevent softening up to, you know, a thousand degrees plus. All right. So this was a big invention uh, around 1900-ish that you can read about in my book, The Story of Knife Steel. Oh, you guys brought me in to plug my book. You didn't even know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was at some point going to mention that all of these terms we've been trying to uh, to note are all in uh, knife engineering as well. Yep, knife engineering, the best-selling metallurgy book on Amazon. Oh. Buy your copy today. Uh, and the more recent book, The Story of Knife Steel, it talks about the metallurgist that invented different steels, high-speed steel, stainless steel, uh, every steel you can think of. You want to know how it was invented? You can read about it in this book. D2, 420, 440C, A2, Rec 76, Magna Cut. You can read how it was invented in the book. Uh, and also, custom knife makers, the steels they were using from you know late 1800s to today, who introduced different steels, you know, Bill Moran with Damascus, Bob Loveless with 154CM. The stories of how all that came to, about, it's all in the book. So I highly recommend it to anyone that wants to learn about steel history and also custom knife and production knife history. I think there's a lot of people that don't know that much about stuff that happened, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And uh, this book, despite being called The Story of Knife Steel, uh, is really a good primer on, uh, you know, some basic knife history. So lots of firsthand accounts. Whenever I could get an interview or a written article or something from a metallurgist or a knife maker or the founder of a knife company, I try to put it in the book because it's much more interesting to read people's words rather than just say, you know, Sal Glesser founded Spyderco. He introduced the pocket clip. You know, it's just not that interesting. It's much more uh, you get a better flavor for the people, you know, their thought process and everything when you get their own words. And everybody that's listened to the po all six people that have listened to the podcast before know that reading isn't really my my strong suit. And I tried to hold out for the the audio version to come out, but uh, I've started it. Uh, I know I'm late. I got my copy early, and I've I got to give you some credit that is scientific is your background. Uh, I have really been impressed with that how well it reads. Thank you. I, I was really prepared for something more textbook, and this really does feel more like something you would pleasure read. Well, that was the intent. It's even more general audience than knife engineering. But I also don't hold anything back. <laughs> so, you know, that 
but that, that's always my approach. So give people credit. They can learn things, yeah. right? This is what knife engineering was for as well. You know, I'm not going to give you dumb analogies that don't really apply to what we're discussing. Just explain things in simple terms and, you know, give people credit that they're smart enough to learn. Yeah, I think you're giving me too much credit, but uh, <laughs> uh, so all right, back to talking about I, I was hoping to touch on some of the performance improvements we've seen, or at least I thought we've seen. I'm actually kind of new to the industry. You know, it, it, and maybe we need to now talk about brittle as well, because, I mean, sure, you could hit 67 Rockwell on some 10 series steels, but that was not a useful blade. Like that would mm-hmm. that would be too brittle. And it seems to me, at least with some of the recent alloys, that we're getting higher working hardnesses. Um, where 62 on 1095 may not be practical for any anything short of a scalpel uh, because it was so brittle. But with, just go ahead and give you another plug, MagnaCut 62 is a, a, a perfectly working hardness for a knife blade. Yeah, we'll talk about MagnaCut and Apex Ultra in a minute, which are two steels that I helped develop. Uh, But I will say some of it is evolution of the industry and of customer perception. Mm -hmm. So I remember in the early 2000s, I started getting into kitchen knives a lot. And there were a lot of Japanese kitchen knives that would have something like white steel or blue super steel. And they'd be advertised as 63 to 64 Rockwell. And it's like, holy cow, like that is way up there in the Rockwell hardness. Most American knives were more around 58 to 60. Some that were really hard would be up to 62. 63 to 64 seemed really hard. And, uh, you know, those knives worked. And I think there has been growing recognition that with how thin knife edges are, and can be that the hardness often outweighs toughness in many applications. Um, you know, I know when I made a few knives many years ago, you know, you can make a kitchen knife so thin that you can start bending the edge with your thumbnail, you know, even if it's 62, 64 Rockwell. So the thinner you go, the more that hardness is important. But even for knives that'll see chopping. So speaking of MagnaCut, so my knife maker buddy, Sean Houston, he made a little chopper knife out of MagnaCut and it was 62 Rockwell. And a similar, he sharpened it to the same geometry as an SE knife in 1095. It's a popular American brand of fixed blades. And he chopped through a nail with both knives. The MagnaCut knife was still sharp the 1095 knife had deformed at the edge because it was only 56. Sometimes when people see knives that are deforming while chopping through things, you know, these are tough tests, they say, oh, it bent, it didn't break. This is tough steel. But that's not always the case. The 1095 may not be very tough. It's just insufficiently hard for the cutting task, right? So it's bending and you can't cut with the knife anymore. 
And there have been many people, especially on social media, I've seen this a lot in Instagram, some on YouTube, growing calls from customers where they want higher hardness knives. This started a lot with M390, where people were saying, oh, you need 62 Rockwell M390 or whatever the number is, or it's junk. It doesn't cut very long. And so a lot of these people care mostly about edge retention because these are just pocket knives. And, you know, they're buying expensive pocket knives and they want them to cut a long time. And, you know, these are the EDC crowd or the collector crowd. So toughness doesn't often come into play for them. They want the knife to cut a long time. And the most common test from these social media guys is rope cutting and cardboard cutting. And so when they test stuff, the harder knives cut longer. And so that becomes the metric against what people are looking for. And they're not seeing that it's counterbalancing with toughness, that as they're raising the hardness, the toughness is also going down. Because, you know, if, if you do tests of toughness, then you're breaking the knife. Right. You know, well, you're, you're chipping the edge, you know, you're damaging the knife where you can simply resharpen if you're just doing edge retention testing. So these testing guys are not going to want to do rigorous toughness testing on all these different blades. So edge retention becomes overemphasized in many ways. Um, and edge retention still comes more. Well, let me ask this. Is edge retention purely a um, a factor of hardness or, I mean, with the exception of geometry, assuming all things are similar in geometry, is, is hardness what uh, determines edge retention or is there? Yeah, as you said, edge geometry will wash out any steel or heat treatment, just about. Uh, you know, you can take a run-of-the-mill steel, we'll say AEBL, go really thin on the edge and it will cut a very long time. If you got a thick edge on CPM S90V, CPM 10V, you know, really high wear resistant steels, they will not cut as long if the geometry is obtuse. Mm. So if you want a good cutting edge, you want it to be thin and acute. So a low angle edge, you know, you're sharpening close to the stone. The most important steel factors are hardness and abrasion resistance. And so the hardness means that it will resist deformation, like we talked about with the SE knife, can't cut anymore if your edge is all blunted. And then abrasion to resist blunting by abrading away your pointy edge. Uh, and another way to think of that is just is wear? Yes, abrasion is a form of wear. There are other forms, but abrasion is the main one that we care about. So wear resistance and hardness. And it will depend on the edge geometry and what you're cutting. Uh, so if you are cutting thick rope, you end up putting a lot of force on the edge. And so hardness becomes a more important factor relatively, though it's really a combination test. As your rope gets thinner, the wear resistance becomes more and more important because you're putting less force on the edge and therefore you're not uh, deforming the edge as much. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on the form of the test that you're doing. I do a controlled catra test, which is almost purely wear. So you can see the effect of hardness on wear resistance. You can go up in hardness and even without any deformation to the edge, it does increase your wear resistance. And so it'll cut longer purely from that fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, but depending on the test you're doing, there may also be high enough forces or stresses where you're deforming the edge as well. 
and then hardness can have a you know an exponential effect on on the edge retention and on the abrasion side what uh, is hardness going to determine how uh, resistant you are to abrasion or are there other factors yeah the carbide type and the volume of the carbide has a much stronger effect on wear resistance than the hardness. So if you take CPM10V, that has 10% vanadium in it. Vanadium carbide is one of the hardest carbide types, and 10% is a lot. So you've got you know, around 17 18% volume of this very hard vanadium carbide. So it's an extremely wear-resistant steel. If you heat treated that to 50 Rockwell, well, even 30 Rockwell, it would be more wear resistant than 1095 at 60 Rockwell. So you can have a much stronger effect on wear resistance through the steel selection, you know, the steel design, than through hardness. Then for a given steel, if we stick with 1095, 55 Rockwell is much more wear resistant than 50, and 60 Rockwell is much more wear resistant than 55, and 65 Rockwell, well, maybe much is too strong a term, but it is relatively more wear resistant as you increase the hardness. So the the size and the what the carbides are made out of is a big factor. I mean, a harder carbide is going to resist wear. That, that makes sense. Yeah, so you can compare steels. So CPM has this whole line of V steels. They sometimes call them killer Vs, but that didn't really catch on beyond internally with the company. So, you know, you've got CPM 1V, that's 1% vanadium. CPM 3V, 3% vanadium. CPM 4V, 4% vanadium. CPM 10V, 10% vanadium. CPM 15V, 15% vanadium. And there is a clear increase in wear resistance as the vanadium content goes up. You know, it's a, it's pretty extreme. Um, now, does uh, carbide size or grain size does that does that factor in as well? For knives, not really. When it comes to wear resistance, mm-hmm. so uh, there's an old Catra test that I wrote about on my website where they did 154 cm and CPM 154. And they did a whole bunch of different edge angles and different uh, sharpening stones and for a fixed condition. So the same sharpening stone, the same edge angle, 154 CM and CPM 154 were almost identical. For some abrasion resistance tests, a larger carbide size is better. The reason is if you've got really chunky carbides, it's more difficult to uh, abrade them away if your abrasive is smaller than uh, the, uh, the carbide. So, you know, if you're using a fine sandpaper, it is not good at abrading large carbides. D2 is really bad at being mirror polished because it has very large carbides in it. Oh. But with knife edges, they're so small, and we're normally cutting things with relatively fine abrasives in them, you know, sand or whatever. And it just doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. So CPM-154 is the powder metallurgy version of 154CM, the exact same steel, but the carbides are smaller. In the Catra test, it cuts exactly the same. And this is also backed up by cardboard testing, rope cutting, you know, whatever your test media of choice is, it seems to be pretty consistent. 
what is the advantage of of small carbides, if any, then? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Dan. <laughs> so the reason why you want fine carbides is for toughness. So when you've got a large carbide, the stress necessary to initiate a crack is much lower. So these carbides are very hard particles, and they are brittle. The bigger they are, the easier it is to get them to crack. If you've got very small carbides, then it's much more difficult to uh, generate a crack at the carbide. And so CPM 154 has about double the toughness of 154 CM. I also did a study on D2 versus spray form D2 called PSF27 versus CPM D2, the powder metallurgy D2. And there was a 50% increase in toughness from D2 to the spray form and another 50% increase from the spray form to the powder metallurgy. And I took micrographs and you can see how the spray form or the powder metallurgy is much finer than the regular D2 and the spray form is basically in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm assuming smaller carbides, basically the they interlock better and that's what keeps it from in the colloquial terms breaking. Well, if you've got a big brittle particle, it's easier to break mm. it than a tiny brittle particle. Mm. That, that's how I would describe it. That makes sense. All right. Now at this point, we have to take a moment. I'm going to have to completely reconfigure our show notes because We've answered questions ahead of time and answered questions that we weren't going to ask. Um, you want to skip to cryo? Uh, it, probably, but I'm going to take another second to kind of digest, uh, look over my notes and see if I can form one more intelligent question to ask. <sighs> yeah, I know that metallurgy is just a big fancy term for black magic. I, I, I get that. I, you know, I, I've sacrificed my crows. I just accept it. But cryo, how is it that some steels benefit from cryo and other steels don't? And is there what happens and is there a way to tell the difference? Okay, we're going to back up again <laughs> and we're going to quote from chapter 19 of the story of knife steel. The chapter is called furnace heat treating. The first section is cryogenic processing and cold treatments. So in 1890, they figured out that when they had high nickel steels, that they would be non-magnetic at room temperature. They didn't know why. The reason is because of retained austenite. The nickel would drop the martensite formation temperatures. And so it would still be austenite at room temperature, and it'd be non-magnetic because austenite is non-magnetic. You'll see this, like if you've got certain pots and pans or a sink made of austenitic stainless steel, you can stick a magnet on it and it'll just fall right off. You'll also notice some of these sinks a stainless steel sink, if you go to the bends in the sink where they bent it, at that bend, it will transform to martensite from the stress hmm. and the magnet will stick in the corner, but not on the sides. But another thing they discovered, 1899, French metallurgist Floris Osmond, he found that if he stuck the high nickel steel in liquid nitrogen, or he called it liquid air, maybe they just used air and liquefied it instead of straight nitrogen back then, I don't know then it'd be magnetic again. So you went down to lower temperatures where the austenite transforms to martensite, and then it would uh, be magnetic again, or hard. Now, Henkels, 
they were the first company to use cryo with knives, or at least a cold treatment. What they would do is they would heat treat the steel hot so that it would have lots of retained austenite and it would be soft after they quench it. And they would machine it in that soft condition and then they would cool it down to make it harder. So they mostly saw it as like a cost cutting procedure. And then uh, in 1949, Robison Cutlery, Robison Cutlery, I don't know, Emerson Case from the W.R. Case family, he came to Robison to try to save the company. One of the things he did was implement this new frozen heat process, and they advertised it with their cold treatments that the knives would cut longer. So there's some more history from the story of knife steel you didn't ask me for, <laughs> and I gave to you anyway. Now I can skip chapter 19. I was on 17, by the way. No, you, that... can't, you can't skip chapter 19 because you'll miss out on the story of Paul Boss. Oh. So anyway, so they, they discovered if you went colder, you could transform to more martensite. We discussed the martensite formation temperatures. The more carbon we had in solution, the more we heated up the steel prior to quenching, the more retained austenite we would have. And if you cool it down further, then you can get more martensite formation. If you had mild steel, no matter how hot you heated it up and quenched it, it would always fully transform to martensite because with the low carbon content and no other alloying elements, it'll fully transform to martensite by the time you get to room temperature. Mm -hmm. But if you add a bunch of other alloying elements, so we were discussing nickel before, that wasn't just to plug my book again. <laughs> nickel is an element that drops the martensite formation temperatures. And so it's more prone to having retained austenite without using a colder quench. So cryo is not just this magic process where it makes steel better or harder or more wear resistant. You need to think of it as a continuation of your quench. So mm -hmm. instead of quenching to room temperature, we are quenching further colder. And that's because our martensite forms at a lower temperature. One of, one of my professors in college uh, said something that made a lot of sense to me when we were talking about refrigeration cycles. Mm -hmm. He said, try not to think of things as hot or cold. Think of everything as less hot. So okay. like a liquid nitrogen is way less hot than room temperature. So you're, yeah, like you said, extending that cooling curve down to a lower temperature. Yeah. And that, that made a lot of sense to me. What, I don't know if that might help some, some other people. Yeah. I, I think of quench as pulling the heat out is the way my simple undereducated redneck well, mind. The reason why we're quenching is to avoid other transformations in the steel. So you yeah. know if you slow cool steel, you get soft phases that form. We want to avoid those, so we cool it down rapidly so that we skip all those and go straight to martensite formation. So nickel is an alloying element that drops the martensite formation temperatures. Carbon is an element that drops uh, the martensite formation temperatures. Uh, almost any element does, apart from aluminum and cobalt are the two biggest ones, which we don't need to worry about for now. Uh, is uh, For cryo, um, does the amount of time at quote-unquote room temperature, like, can you stop that process, or can at any point, if a steel will respond to cryo, can you then expose it to cold and, and continue the quench process? If you quench to room temperature and you hold there for a, uh, some period of time, the cryo will be less effective. Mm. It will also be less effective if you temper first. 
So what happens during the hold at room temperature or especially during tempering is you are stabilizing the retained austenite. So the mechanism is a little bit hard to describe orally, but basically when you're tempering, you're letting carbon come out of the steel. It was in solution. Mm -hmm. So we temper it, we let a little bit come out and it forms these little tiny carbides. The carbon will diffuse to the retained austenite at the interface between martensite and austenite, and it will stabilize that interface so that more martensite doesn't form. Mm. So that's a little too complicated, but the bottom line is you stabilize the austenite, and so it doesn't transform as readily once it goes into cryo. So again, the best way to think of cryo is as an extension of the quench. Uh, So even uh, if you hold steel, I'm trying to remember, I got a chart in knife engineering, but uh, you can use a freezer, a household freezer, and get more martensite formation. Because again, we're just talking about getting more martensite by cooling down colder. Uh, if you hold at room temperature for an hour and then go into the freezer, it, the freezer will no longer do anything because it's too stable, at least in the steel that I've got a chart for in knife engineering. Well, to further plug knife engineering, uh, a lot of the heat treat tables in the back have <clears throat> plate quenched, plate quenched, and then to freezing and then plate quench, quench to uh, liquid nitrogen or uh, dry ice. So you can see all three curves. Yeah. So to get back to the question of do certain steels respond more, another element that can drop your martensite formation temperatures is chromium. And of course, we know stainless steels have lots of chromium. So chromium itself doesn't have the biggest impact on the martensite formation temperatures. But if you've got 10, 12% of it in solution, that's a healthy amount. And so you're dropping your martensite formation temperatures. So, you know, 1095, you can have too much retained austenite by overheating during austenitizing and getting lots of carbon in solution. But it will not have as much retained austenite as a 1% carbon stainless steel like 440C. So 440C, if you had, uh, you know, you heated it up really hot, 2000 degrees and quenched, you would have a lot of retained austenite. So stainless steels can be more sensitive to overheating than, well, even that's not true. Carbon steels, you know, you overheated 100 degrees and you got too much retained austenite. Stainless steels, if you overheat 100 degrees, it might still be fine. Uh, But with the high chromium, they can you can't get to 66 Rockwell, right? So 1095, it gets 66 Rockwell easy. 440C, you can't. It'll top out around 64 Rockwell. And mm-hmm. that's because as you dissolve more and more carbide, you get more carbon in solution, but also more chromium in solution. So for the same amount of carbon as you had in 1095, you'll have a bunch of chromium and you'll have to you'll be getting more retained austenite. So this is even more extreme with really high corrosion resistant steels. So these are more exotic, but steels like Vanex or LC200N, Chronador 30, these are like these salt water stainless steels. They have even more chromium in solution. And so they top out around 6061 Rockwell. That's if you max out everything. You know, there's no way you can get them to 66. Well, maybe if you had some mega rapid liquid helium cooling mechanism i've never seen such a thing but i won't say it's impossible but it's unrealistic 
So normally 6061 is where they top out. And that's because they have more chromium in solution for corrosion resistance, and therefore their hardness doesn't go as high. But if you just austenitize them at an appropriate temperature, you know, if you don't heat it too hot, you know, just accept you're only going to get 5859 Rockwell. You can still skip cryo because you don't have too much retained austenite. So for a given steel, uh, there's this balance between your austenitizing temperature and then using cryo. So if the hotter you austenitize, the more carbide you dissolve, the more carbon and other alloying elements are in solution, the more retained austenite you can get. So if you have too much retained austenite, you can do one of two things. One is austenitize at a lower temperature, and the other is use cryo. Right, so either way. So some people will be like, oh, I heat treated this piece of steel uh, two different ways. I heated it up to my austenitizing temperature. One, I just quenched room temperature. The other, I put in cryo, then I tempered them. And look, there's only like half a Rockwell point difference or one Rockwell difference. And that's because the austenitize that they were using for their previous knives was optimized for no cryo. And so there's okay. not that much of an increase in hardness because there wasn't that much retained austenite. Now, the performance may actually be a little better, even though the hardness didn't change that much. Decreasing the retained austenite might drop the toughness a little bit, but give you more strength for a given hardness. It might sharpen a little easier for the reasons we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there's no change to the steel, you know, half Rockwell, why am I wasting my time? Now, if you took the same piece of steel and you austenitized it 50 degrees or 100 degrees hotter, then your one quenched to room temperature would be really soft. It'd have way too much retained austenite. It would be junk. And the one that you use cryo on would be a couple points, two, three points harder uh, than your lower austenitized version. So to put some numbers on this, we'll say we took AEBL, we austenitized at 1925. We quenched to room temperature. We got 62 Rockwell. We did the same thing with cryo. We got 62 and a half Rockwell, we'll say, maybe 63. Now, if we use 1975, we would get 64 Rockwell with cryo, and without cryo, it'd be like 56. So the difference increases because we got more carbon in solution, more chromium in solution, and cryo becomes important. All right, I'm going to need a second. Okay, I think I got it. Uh, short version is it's the alloying components that'll give you, that'll, that'll show the difference. And alloy okay. are the two biggest things. So just like we discussed, a simple carbon steel can have too much retained austenite in it. You know, if you have too much carbon in solution. So when people say, oh, only stainless steels need cryo, it's not true. Because we talked about you can austenitize lower and have an appropriate amount of retained austenite. And also because you can have too much retained austenite even in a simple carbon steel. But the more stainless a steel is usually means there's more chromium in solution. More chromium drops the martensite formation temperatures. And so if you want to maximize your hardness, you're going to need cryo. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the kind of three different types of cryo? You mentioned the freezer and then the, the bath of dry ice and lots of people use like isopropyl alcohol and then liquid nitrogen. Yeah. And so the main difference between those three methods is simply temperature. So a household freezer is going to be like negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 15, maybe something like that. A fridge is usually hovering close to freezing temperature. So 
it, it could just be, you know, zero degrees Fahrenheit. Anyway, so that range for a freezer, then dry ice, I don't know off the top of my head, it's like negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Then liquid nitrogen is like negative 290 Fahrenheit, something like that. So the main difference between the three methods is simply the temperature. So a freezer, uh, oh, I've done this test before. I've got a video and an article where I compared freezer, dry ice, liquid nitrogen, and room temperature all on AEBL. Is that on Knife Steel Nerds? That is on Knife Steel Nerds or the YouTube channel, Knife Steel Nerds. So knifesteelnerds.com and, you know, Google Knife Steel Nerds, it all comes up. So uh, that's one of the few times I've used dry ice. You know, dry ice is kind of like a one-night kind of thing. So if you've got a grocery store next to you that has a bunch of it, it can be easy. I do not. I've called grocery stores and they're like, what do you mean? We don't, we don't sell. Why, why would we sell dry ice? In the Southeast, uh, Publix keeps uh, dry ice in the, the frozen food section. But liquid nitrogen can be pretty easy to get. They can screw you over. You know, like I, I got on the good customer list and my liquid nitrogen price went down by like 80%. So, you know, the prices can vary, but you buy a doer, it doesn't matter what brand, just get a cheap Chinese one. And you can go to a welding supply, sometimes farm supplies. So every time I go to my welding supply, they ask me if I have any samples in my <laughs> my doer, and they don't mean steel samples. They mean bull semen samples. So they, they really don't like it when they dump out the doer and there's bull <laughs> semen everywhere. They get very yeah. upset. Especially uh, when it melts. Yeah. Yeah. When you're when you're looking for a doer, also make sure you look at the opening size at the top, especially mm -hmm. if you're planning mm -hmm. on putting your knives down inside that. If you're transferring to another container, it's less important. But uh, lots of times that opening will be like an inch and a half. But the most common diameter is just under two inches, like 50 okay. millimeters. And so if you're making wide kitchen knives, then they won't fit in the hole. You know, it's a, it's a common problem for certain guys. You know, so. <laughs> and I I have been working on several solutions that have involved uh, clamps, expanded trays. It's it's a little arcanic, arcane, but uh, no, I feel your pain there. Yeah, so a bigger opening usually comes with a bigger doer. Uh, you know, the bigger the opening, the faster the liquid nitrogen leaves the doer. So that's sort of counteracted by having a bigger size. Unfortunately, a bigger doer is usually more expensive, hence why people often get the smaller doers uh, and then pour into some kind of secondary container. I've got 30 liters and it is still just slightly below two inches in diameter. My kitchen knives won't quite fit in the doer. Yeah, disappointing. Yeah, it, it's not the first time in my life I've I've been too big. To... <laughs> okay, I'm, we all know I'm lying. It is the first time. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I just have a 10 liter and it'll last, you know, two, three months. But I, I typically am using relatively small steel samples, you know, for toughness coupons, hardness coupons, stuff like that. So. Side note, if you've got some left over, you can put champagne or um aren't any sort of effervescent uh beverage in a mixing bowl and pour in the liquid nitrogen as you whisk it 
and in like 45 seconds, you have sherbet. Yeah, you can also make uh, my kids love Dippin' Dots. Uh, you know, the, yeah, the ice cream of the future. So you <laughs> you know you drip that in, uh, and then it you get little spheres of frozen ice cream. Oh, so good there's call. recipes online. I had forgotten about that. I've mostly just been doing champagne and beer. I can understand the champagne. I don't understand the beer. Uh, because I can. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, I did um, like Orange Crush and I did Knee High. And non-alcoholics just weren't as interesting to me. Okay. So let's yeah. get back to hardness, yeah. toughness, balance, which we sort of skipped over. We have. So we talked about how thin edges need hard steel so they don't deform. But the thinner the edge, the easier it is to chip the edge. So you somehow need hardness and toughness at the same time. And this is a this is difficult or impossible to achieve in steel. You know, the harder it is, the less tough it is, almost universally. But some steels are better at achieving high hardness than others, and some have higher toughness than others. So some tough steels you can't get to very high hardness. The reason that they're tough in part is because they have less carbon in them. So like 5160, for example, has 0.60% carbon, 60 points of carbon. And uh, you're not going to be heat treating that to 64, but it's got very high toughness. Then there's also all these high wear resistance stainless steels, M390, S90V, S30V. They are not particularly tough. And so we've often been limited to 60 Rockwell, maybe 62 Rockwell on a lot of these steels. But some steels can get relatively hard and maintain good toughness. So ABL is one of them. ABL you can get up to 63, 64, and it has quite good toughness. MagnaCut can get up to 63, 64, even 65, and it maintains good toughness. So you can have very thin edges. Remember, a thin edge... An acute edge is the best way to have long edge retention. It, so if you have high hardness and high toughness, or we'll say high hardness and good enough toughness, then you can have very thin edges that cut a long time. Then there is a level beyond that, you know, 66 Rockwell, 67 Rockwell, sometimes 70 Rockwell. Apex Ultra is a low alloy steel made for forging that I worked on, along with Marco and Tobias in Europe. And that steel has very excellent toughness for a 66, 67 Rockwell steel. And so it can be very good for kitchen cutlery, you know, ultra performance cutlery, you know, for customers that know not to put things in dishwashers or to smack them against, you know, ceramic countertops. My soul just died a little bit. <laughs> so, but there are, there are some steels. So again, you can read about this in the story of knife steel that were developed in the 60s that were designed for 70 Rockwell. So these were high-speed steels where they maximized the alloy content and they dialed in the carbon content just right so that they could heat treat them to 70 RC. So some of these steels you may have heard of would be Maximet, uh, Rex-121, Z-Max. The original was M42, also called Hypercut. So MagnaCut was a, a tribute to hypercut the original 70 rockwell steel that's where the name magna cut came from so 
these deals, some of them can be tough enough, but you'll also see guys with Spyderco knives and Maximet where they're broken at the hole because, you know, the toughness is not particularly high. So it depends on the knife, depends on the customer, you know, how they're going to use the knife. But sometimes you can get away with that kind of hardness. So um, what gives some of the, the modern steels the ability to be so hard, but still be a functional knife blade. I mean, what has what has skewed the days from ten ninety five? Hard equals brittle. The harder it is, the less tough it's going to be. So one thing is tempering resistance, like uh-huh. we discussed. But for a lot of these high wear resistance steels, like D two, and even more wear resistance steels since then, like CPM ten V with all that vanadium. The carbides would get so big and there'd be so much carbide in them that they would have low toughness at that level of wear resistance. But when they developed powder metallurgy technology in the 1960s, which you can read about in the story of knife steel, they came up with a method for making the carbide size small for these steels. It actually changed the whole game because vanadium would lead to large vanadium carbides. And so they would use other carbide types instead, because then they added more than 4 or 5% vanadium. They couldn't even forge the steel. It would just crack while they were trying to forge it. They literally could not make the product. When they made vanadium powder metallurgy steels, the vanadium carbides would be smaller than the other types. So it changed everything. The way they designed the powder metallurgy steels would be completely different than how they designed the older steels made for conventional steelmaking technology. And so we have reached new levels of wear resistance, hardness, toughness, balance. Because a steel like MagnaCut or a steel like CPM4V or CPM Crewwear, they have much higher wear resistance than these steels like 1095, but at similar or higher levels of toughness because they have these small carbides, small hard carbides from the powder metallurgy process. So Apex Ultra is actually not powder metallurgy. We designed it within the confines of conventional steel making technology. Uh, in some ways it benefited us that it's made for forging because we really want all the carbides to dissolve at the forging temperature. But powder metallurgy steels like MagnaCut, they are designed for powder metallurgy. So they have really fine, hard carbides. So they have an excellent combination of toughness, hardness, and wear resistance. So if you've got really hard, fine carbides, remember we said big carbides are brittle and lead to lower toughness. If you've got very high hardness, small carbides, you've got a higher combination of wear resistance and toughness because they're very hard for wear resistance, but very small for toughness. Um, Is that why some... uh, Sorry, I'm trying to pick my words carefully. Is that why some steels can be tougher even even though the, when they're temper, tempered at a higher hardness, they can be tougher than at a lower hardness? If that may, uh, I don't think I'm asking the question as well as I can. Well, let, let's compare two steels. All right. So CPM3V and CPM10V. Okay. They're, the, they're very similar except for carbon and vanadium. 10V has 18% vanadium carbide. 3V has 4 to 5% vanadium carbide. If you heat treat them both to 60 Rockwell, the 3V is much tougher 
if you heat treat the 3V to 62 Rockwell and the 10V to 56 Rockwell, the 3V is still much tougher because the steel is higher in toughness. It's got less brittle carbide in it. And so even though it's at a higher hardness, it is still tougher because all that carbide in the 10V <clears throat> leads to lower toughness. Uh, I'm more meant, so say, and I'm having to do this off the top of my head. I, I can't. Um, my copy of Knife Engineering is at the shop. Um, but if I remember correctly, S35VN at 59, 60, 61 Rockwell is going to be tougher than at, say, 57 Rockwell. So this gets into the intricacies of heat treating, which is a little bit different subject. Um, but uh, let's talk about two major mechanisms, maybe three. One is called tempered martensite embrittlement. So normally, when we temper something hotter, it gets softer and it gets tougher. So if you take steel as quenched, we quenched it to room temperature, maybe even we did cryo, it is very hard and relatively brittle, relatively easy to break. We temper it at 400 degrees, we lost two to four points of hardness, and it got 50%, 100% tougher, right? This is normal stuff. If we tempered further, let's say up to 500 degrees or 600 degrees, it got softer, but the toughness goes down a little bit. Depends on the steel, exactly where this temperature range is. For simple steels, 1095, 01, those kinds of steels, it's usually around 500 degrees, like between 500 and 700, something like that. And then it goes, then the toughness will go back up again. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how when we temper, we're allowing carbon to come out as tiny little carbides. So the toughness goes up, the hardness goes down some. As you temper hotter and hotter, those little carbides get bigger and bigger. When they get big enough, they then start to reduce the toughness of the steel. Mm -hmm. So in, normally we're getting less carbon in solution as the carbon comes out and the toughness goes up. But now our carbides are acting as brittle particles. So when you add more alloying elements to delay tempering, it pushes this embrittlement range up to higher temperatures. So stainless steels, high alloy steels, their embrittlement range is normally 100 degrees, 200 degrees hotter. So you can have something that has gotten both softer and less tough. And so you should avoid this tempered martensite embrittlement tempering range. Mm -hmm. So that's one mechanism. Another way you can have something that's both softer and more brittle is very well known among knife makers, which is grain growth. So, you know, if you overheat a piece of steel, we'll, we'll say 5160, since we're not getting more carbon in solution. So you can austenitize at 1500 degrees, you got a nice fine grain size. Uh, it's very tough. If you austenitize at 1700 degrees, the grain size is big, it's brittle. And even if you temper it more, it'll still be brittle even if it's softer because of the grain size. Another thing that can happen from overheating, even if your grain size is small, we'll say this steel has grain pinning elements. It's got a vanadium addition. We're looking at W2. That's got 0.2% vanadium. The vanadium is keeping the grain size small. We overheated the steel to 1700 degrees and the grain size is still small, but we got more carbon in solution. If you have too much carbon in solution, 
Uh, again, even without retained austenite, you get a different type of martensite called plate martensite. Normal martensite is called lath martensite. It's relatively tough. Plate martensite is hard, high carbon martensite. It is very hard and it is more brittle. Sometimes when they take micrographs of it, they see little cracks that formed in it. It's so brittle, these micro cracks. And so if you overheat a steel and get plate martensite, very high carbon martensite, it will be more brittle, even if it's at a lower hardness. So you can temper it down even softer than your tough lath martensite, but it will be more brittle. So those are three mechanisms, tempered martensite embrittlement, grain growth, and plate martensite that can all lead to lower toughness steel, even if it's at a lower hardness. Voodoo. Got it. So don't overheat the steel when you austenitize. Don't overheat the steel when you temper. Which, I mean, also brings a little to the the trap of just heat it up till it's not magnetic. Well, that's great until you until you just overheated it, and now you have a whole new set of issues. Yeah, I developed a simple method for heat treating in a forge, so I called it a foolproof method. So I at a certain method for thermocycling. It's not that complicated, but anyway, you thermocycle the steel to optimize it for forage heat treating. You stick it in the forge. As soon as it gets non-magnetic, you quench, and that is the right temperature. So I said, this is foolproof. So if you get it from the the steel mill and heat it to non-magnetic, it won't reach full hardness when you quench because the carbide structure is too coarse to dissolve that quickly. So the thermocycling is to get the carbide structure fine enough so that as soon as you hit non-magnetic, you can quench. So I said, great. I'm going to ask a knife maker to try the same method and send me coupons. I'm going to test them for toughness. We can do a little combo video because this was another YouTuber knife maker. So we can do a, a little collaboration here, push each other's channels. So I send him some 1084, tell him how to do the method. He sends it back. I test the toughness and it's brittle. It's because even with the magnet method, he heated it up to non-magnetic. And then he stuck it back in the forge to try to return it to the same temperature. Mm. Then he quenched. And even that was enough to overheat it. So these steels can be extremely sensitive to overheating. And these knife makers drive themselves crazy with all their various thermocycling methods trying to refine the grain size. And then they overheat it and quench. It just doesn't matter. And so it does end up being voodoo. All of these, you know, hop on one leg three times kind of things. Align your quench tank with Magnetic North. I literally yeah. literally have lost count of the number of times I've heard that. And they think it's all in the thermocycling method, and it's not. It's because sometimes they overheat prior to quenching, and sometimes they hit it right. If you had a furnace, you could do it the same way every time. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Even Heat. Even Heat thermoses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have an Even Heat. It's great. I have had both Paragon and Even Heat, and I I loved my Paragon. They had great customer service, but it really wasn't intended. It really was intended for 18, 1900 degree temps, and I was running it at frequently 20, 2100, and the, the coils didn't like that. Yeah, I think the, so the Paragon furnaces, the knife maker models used to top out at 2000. So that has changed in the last 15, 20 years. They, they could tell us the date. So, you know, I don't need to tell you which furnace to buy. I have used Even Heat. I can recommend them without reservation, but that doesn't mean I'm saying 
other furnaces are junk or you shouldn't buy them. I have I have used both. And the only reason I went to my even heat was that it had higher operate. I was basically redlining my Paragon. And mm-hmm. you know, if you redline something for extended periods, it's it's going to have issues. Yeah, the coils have shorter life if you're operating them close to their limit. Uh, so I, I did switch to an even heat, but more because of the way I work and not because Paragon had done anything wrong. Yeah. And I do believe Paragon furnaces now, I think most of the models top out at 2300 or 2350. So before Paragon sends you angry emails, I need to add that in. Well, and side note, I've I've mentioned their customer service. I had issues with a board on one of mine. Um, Thursday afternoon, I reached out to them and they overnighted a board to me so that it was there the next morning. And then when I had issues, they got one of their engineers on the phone with me to help me install the new board. And I mean... This was back before the podcast and everything. I was even a tinier fish, and they put all that effort into uh, to help me uh, get up and running. Yeah, that's great. So that should both be true and cut off some of those angry emails that Kyle has to read. Poor Kyle. Yeah. Uh, side note on my own personal interest: uh, Are there um, are there s- is there somewhere to find or is there soak times on the cryo side? Um, or is it once you hit temperature, you hit temperature? Yeah, so Martin site, like I said, is controlled by a start temperature and a finish temperature. And it is not controlled by time. Mm-hmm. So when you austenitize something, when you temper something, the time is important. With Martin site formation, once it hits the temperature, it is instantaneous. Mm-hmm. So you can see this, uh, you know, there's some really cool, like, fancy microscopy where they can show the martensite forming in the steel while it cools down. And holding it doesn't uh, usually lead to more martensite. There are many studies out there in scientific journals that will tell you that the whole time does matter. And they've got experiments that show that it does matter. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Ignore the, the journal articles. I don't know what is wrong with cryogenic processing scientific studies maybe they're all funded by big cryo whatever that is (laughs) or maybe it's because there's a bias towards presenting positive results or maybe it's because wear resistance testing can be and have inherent scatter in it Uh, but it just doesn't make a difference so i tested this myself with my catcher machine i took a famous d2 cryo study it's one of the most cited studies for the importance of cryo time because everyone you look at will tell you that the time has to be different. So, you know, I can't just pick some time period and then say that'll do it. So I picked a famous D2 study. I did one with zero cryo and one with a 36-hour cryo, which was determined to be the perfect length according to this study. Then I tempered the 36-hour cryo one a little hotter than the no cryo, so they would be the same hardness. And actually, I went a little too hot, and the cryo one ended up like half a point softer. So the cryo version didn't cut as long as the non-cryo because it was half a point softer. It didn't matter that I did a optimized 36-hour cryo. The cryo affects the hardness through more martensite. 
So as long as the temp is is as long as the cryo temperature is all the way through the steel, that's it, that's exactly how long it needs. Yeah, you only need like thirty minutes, an hour, you know, however long it takes to get down to the temperature. A lot of times, I end up putting mine in overnight just because you know I'm using a furnace and then I let it cool down overnight and then temper in it. But that's not because I'm trying to get higher wear resistance. It's just convenience. I drop them in the doer and then I pull them out when I'm ready to temper them. Mm-hmm. Some people talk about needing to leave the steel in for like your freezer for like 24 hours. Yeah, 24 hours oh. is a pretty normal recommendation. But yeah, you don't need it. Just has to get down to temperature. Okay. I didn't know if at the not quite as low of temperature, if it needed a little bit longer to transform. It's just temperature. Yeah. Okay. So as long as it's down in its little non-beating heart of steel, it's reached the temperature all the way through. It's That's exactly how long it needs. Yep. Um, cool. I'm doing some back of the napkin calculations on. Yep. My thin blades will be fine. I think they'll be good. Uh, I've heard lots of people say like with liquid nitrogen, like once it stops like bubbling a ton, you're pretty close to the same temperature. Yeah, it should be the same thing with dry ice, like when you're cooling down the alcohol. So if it's bubbling, that means, well, it's boiling, right? It's literally Mm -hmm. boiling. So, you know, when water is at 100 degrees Celsius, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it's boiling away. So, you know, if you have water in contact with something very hot, then it's going to boil away the water. The same thing with the liquid nitrogen. It is liquid nitrogen at negative 290 whatever degrees. If it is any warmer than that, it boils away. And so if it's in contact with something hot, it's still boiling away because it boils when it's in contact with the steel. And if it's no longer boiling away, that means that it's not in contact with something hot, which is making it boil away. There you go, guys. So is there anything we should have asked that we didn't? Uh, You didn't ask where to buy the story of knife steel. Innovators behind modern Damascus and super steels. You know, how many times, Kyle, did I tell you (laughs) to find out? Um, I'm assuming Amazon. Uh, are there any other uh, excellent book purveyors where they could find that text? Yeah, Pops Knife Supply has some physical copies. Amazon, you can get the paperback or the hardcover. Uh, I also have a PDF, which is a few dollars cheaper, uh, which is available through PayHip. If you go to knifestillnerds.com, there's like main buttons at the top. One of them is the story of Knife Steel Book, and there's a link to pay hip where you can get the PDF. I mean, the paperback and especially the hardcover is better, but if you've got a nice big iPad and you prefer digital copies or you're in a country, like if you're not in the United States or Europe, you know, you probably need to get the PDF. Uh, I just have to get the hardback so that uh, I can look you in the eye when I ask you to autograph it at Blade Show this year. The hardcover is the best. I actually get the most royalty money from the PDF, even though it's the cheapest. And I might get the least from the hardcover. It's pretty close between the paperback and the hardcover. But anyway, the hardcover is the way to go if you can swing it. It's also the most expensive, obviously. Perfect. That lets me have the best product while also... 
I mean, that, yeah, that, that is, well, you should tr- buy like multiple copies of everything, you know, like a bunch of PDFs, lots of hardcovers for Christmas presents. You know, yeah. I, it, it physically pains me to, to compliment you this much, but I actually have two copies of uh, knife engineering. One is the shop copy and it is thoroughly loved. And then one is the reference copy that is on my bookshelf. Yeah, I'd like to do a hardcover and digital version of Knife Engineering as well. Uh, but I'm going to wait for the second edition to do that. And I haven't started on the second edition. So who knows when or if <laughs> that will ever come out. But. And it'll have nothing to do with a dip of sales in the first edition. The first edition keeps selling. I have no idea who could possibly be left to buy it. But no, the second edition is not for more sales. Um, I just, you know, the, it's been uh, three years. Um, and a, a lot of these studies I've done since knife engineering are trying to fill in gaps from knife engineering or uh, areas that I did not have what I felt was enough hands-on experience. So right after knife engineering, I did my big study on oil quenching did my studies on thermal cycling for different heat treatments, uh, stuff that I didn't have enough hands-on experience. You learn things just by doing them. <laughs> you know, that that's obvious. But it, sometimes it's different than what you read in the scientific articles, you know. And so, you know, I can do the microscopy and the toughness testing and everything to dispel a lot of these myths and, and you know, pointing due north, north quenching, whatever. And I learned a lot of stuff and came up with some very good practical advice and some really good uh, micrographs to show what happens in this deal. And so a lot of that stuff I want to incorporate in the second edition. So uh, uh, Knife Steel Nerds, uh, mm-hmm. if you're on the Patreon, you get to see it a little sooner. But that mm-hmm. is a great source for a lot of your, your articles uh, and test results. Yeah, knifestillnerds.com. I try to do most things on YouTube as well as in articles now, sometimes only YouTube. That has really broadened my audience from my website. Mm-hmm. So I've enjoyed doing YouTube. YouTube's very time consuming. You know, I generate all the data, I write up an article in a couple hours, and then I've got another week or two weeks ahead of me making the video of the same thing. You know, so. Extremely time consuming. There's a reason we're audio only. Yeah. Yeah. For the for the listeners that don't know, each minute of YouTube like edited YouTube video is roughly an hour of editing for what most yes. people say. And and that is true for me as well. Uh and that's even with pretty limited editing. You know, this isn't like uh uh professional level editing. It's just getting a proper edited video down you know it just takes forever and saying what you're trying to say and not get it messed up so yeah i've gone back and forth i've tried scripts which i think end up too robotic uh but you know i'm like well i need to line things up with what images i'll be showing but in the end i find it more natural just to talk normally as Mm. i say it in a halting voice (laughs) You know, I I get up my data. I just talk through it. I explain it. I'm just looking at, you know, graphs and stuff while I'm talking. And then I just edit them in later. And that way I talk like a normal person instead of a robot. 
The few videos I've done, I wound up just having bullet points to make sure that I answered everything and did it in order. Yeah. Otherwise, to your point, you just don't sound genuine and people tune you out. And it, back to Laren's Patreon, if you do one of the tiers, you can get a really cool Knife Steel Nerds mug. Yeah, I send those out usually every three months. Every once in a while, someone sends me an angry email. Like, I signed up two weeks ago. Where was my mug? Like, well, mm. I don't know if you're going to stick around, and I hate going to the post office. So, you know, you'll, <laughs> you'll see it in, in a month or two. I love your honesty. But the, the mugs are great. You know, they're a fun little perk. Uh, the Patreon, you know, I had no intention of ever asking for money. But it turns out steel research is expensive. Uh, you know, so I have spent easily a hundred grand on knife steel research the past few years, and that would not be possible without Patreon. Beth, so, if you're listening, do you hear how much money I've saved us? <laughs> I have not spent a fraction of that. So, I mean, I, I, I try to spend down the Patreon, you know, so I, I reserve that money. That's not money for me. It is money for the knife steel research. You know, I have other sources of income. The Patreon is for the research, and I just spend it like it's free. You know, getting metallography done, uh, getting specimens prepped, uh, my catcher blanks. I paid knife makers to grind all of those. You know, just like over a hundred blanks at this point. I don't even know how many. Uh, and all that stuff adds. Oh, I paid a bunch of Damascus makers. I did that huge Damascus study earlier this year. That was. I I wrote about how much money that was. It was like twenty grand or something. I don't. Know, maybe it was only ten grand. It was a lot of money. So Damascus buy. steel is not cheap. Yeah. So I bought a bunch of Damascus. I paid my dad to make Damascus. I paid other people to make Damascus. Get specific combinations and patterns for testing. And obviously, that would not be possible without Patreon funds. So that has really opened up a whole world. I can say unequivocally, I have spent more money and spent more time on knife steel research than anyone before. And that's because of Patreon. And you've got two books to prove it. Yeah, the books, I'm not going to write another book. The story of Knife Steel, the reason why I'm so happy to plug it, other than this book is not about me and my knowledge. It's about knife makers and metallurgists before me. So I really want to push these people that are forgotten. You know, yeah. But the other reason is I spent a thousand hours writing this book. It's extremely time consuming. Uh, you know, The whole history of tool steel and stainless steel part it did not exist before I wrote it. I, I didn't read a couple of books and rip it off for this one. I had to do the original research, looking back at the original trade uh, magazines, the advertisements from the steel companies. They all claim to invent different steels, and only one of them did, obviously. <laughs> you know, So you have to find the original one. I found a bunch of old ads, both for knives and for the steels. It's funny that there are ads for steels. Uh, but so all these awesome like vintage ads. So the book is amazing. You know, I, I can say that because it's it's not just me that, you know, it's not me. It's all of them. You know, and I found amazing stuff from all these really cool innovators and uh, steel companies and metallurgists and knife makers. So you want to learn about all them, you know, make my thousand hours not be in vain and uh, learn about all these cool people. Uh, so you gave your guy or where they can get your book. Do you want to tell people where they can find you online and then we'll wrap the show up? Sure. So mostly my Instagram, which is knife still nerds, the YouTube channel, knife still nerds, knife still nerds.com, patreon.com slash knife still nerds. If you Google knife still nerds, you'll find lots of stuff. <laughs> so, I'm, yeah. I'm noticing a pattern there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. And you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com and you can find the podcast anywhere where you're listening to podcasts. And you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com and Dogwood Custom Knives on Instagram. You can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at uh, Cage Daily Knives on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, threads, TikTok, all of them. But mainly I'm active on Instagram and some on Facebook. Thanks, Laren, and uh, thank you for all that you do to to help preserve some of this knowledge and bring it all to knife makers that uh, are interested to know about it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I hope someday we can have a podcast where I don't define toughness and hardness again. So I, I, <laughs> I really feel like we're going to lose people, but I'm trying to make it as interesting uh, as possible <laughs> and yep. make it understandable. So I appreciate the questions. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. Well, let's take it to the edge. Cause that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about.